You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at mutinyinfocafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. Hey, we're on the motherfucking podcast, episode 119. Uh, we got Justin LaSalle to come back another week and hang out since we did a shorter episode this time. I would like to point out that this is the RBG episode, the red, blue, green episode. Red, blue, uh, green. Yeah, man. Shout out to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, man. RBG. <laughs> RBG. RIP, man. What a sad thing, man. Really it is a, me. It's it's super sad, man. My uh I really felt that big time. I know, I'm feeling I'm feeling it big time. Yeah. I, I, know, I know you talked about it before, like as as being something that you were like legitimately concerned well, and a lot of people were concerned about, but you had particularly out of my more politically aware friends, like you had made note of that. And uh, I was I was honestly kind of expecting it and uh, and even expecting it. It just kind of bowled me over, man. Like, I mean, especially right now, you know, it's just like, fuck. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, obviously we've been following the news buzz a little bit. Uh, What what is uh, what is your prediction for what happens next, Gordo? What is your armchair political analyst um, prediction on this? Yeah, Gordon, well, make me feel good. Make sure this is a positive prediction. Okay, well, I here's what I think. Th- this is what I th- I think that the that uh, mostly the Republicans are going to stick with the script and just completely, you know, just go with trying to seat someone immediately. I think that's just. Right. I think I don't think there's any way around that. I think everybody that said they wouldn't do that is going to do that. Right. Um. So like that's just kind of the reality of the situation. What I'm really looking uh, what i'm really looking forward to is seeing the the kind of the reaction of both the public and the energized um more progressive wing of the democratic party to be like hey we need to figure out how to how to do something here you know right i mean to a certain extent aoc has already been really vocal about that and uh so and it's been really just so refreshing to have somebody like that in there and just talking real talk you know and right. just letting people know the score and just saying you know this you know this will not stand i'm not going to let it stand we've al- we've already heard that uh some of the older Democrats are just like, you know, well, you know, as far as blocking it, is that what here, you're talking here, about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Here's what's on the table and here's what's off the table. And, um, and you know, she's not taking any of that. And I, and I love to see that. I love to see people that are just like, hey, no, you know, fuck your rules. This is what we're going to do. Um, so there's a number of scenarios that I think might might work. 
but like also Republicans have a real a real narrow road to to travel in this thing. That that this thing's got just way tougher for them. Um they're risking they're seriously I mean they they have the riskiest political future of anybody you know anybody in their seat or keeping office right now so um, they made these kind of <laughs> weirdly grandiose promises really early on and said like well we we absolutely wouldn't do this if this happened and the, and they and they a lot of them have done that They're just like gone on record and several times like Lindsey Graham I, that guy fucking he he talked about this like three or four times in the past year with the exact uh, quote of use my words against me saying use my like, words yeah that's gonna happen brother <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and it's like it, it's like please you know so I mean things have just heated through the roof with this thing you yeah know? and it and it sucks that um what, what the, the thing that really you know my wife pointed out. It's like, you know, it just sucks that that's, that's what her primary concern was on her deathbed. You know what I mean? Right, like, that she felt I mean, the need to... That she felt the need... Yeah, to articulate that. that. To, to yeah. make her final wishes about abstaining from naming a new candidate for her well, it's seat. Like, so, it's like Marcus Aurelius in Gladiator, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Now we like, brought this up to yeah. my speed. I can participate. <laughs> okay, great. Great. I can jump right in now. So, here are all my problems with Gladiator. First of all, <laughs> Gordo, I have a question for you. So, like, it seems like, you know, if, if I'm a Republican, I'm thinking, like, you got two choices. You can either rush to make that, that seat happen, or the other option is that you could almost hold it as a bargaining chip for, like, as a way to like lure people to vote for you, basically saying like a vote for a Republican or a Republican content or Congress or Republican president is a way to ensure that 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 choice is made by a Republican. That also opens you up to like basically the Democrats saying the same thing, which is like, well, no, that's actually now up for grabs for both. I feel like with this current president and administration, they're going to air towards like, let's make it happen immediately. Mm -hmm. um, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that as far as um, is expecting these people to act ethically is is laughable. Um, but they're <laughs> well, not. Yeah, gonna I mean, it, it, they're it, not going to do it. it. it they, you know, it's that all all's fair in what, love and war type of thing. You know, we'll leave we'll leave that you know that uh, that pussy ethics shit for the Democrats, right? Like, <laughs> leave that for my party. We're really good at just taking that high ground and fucking till it plows you into the ground, man. Strike first, like, strike hard. It's no just, mercy. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, dude, this, this ties in with Cobra Kai and Johnny, you know. Uh, dude, I just made... Okay, so I, this is a quick tie-in here, okay? I just made it so that my phone says when I send an, when I send an email, it now says, it's now Johnny saying, send it to the internet! <laughs> <laughs> I actually, like... I love the, that shit so much. Literally, the only thing I planned on talking about today was Cobra Kai. Like That's that, probably a good thing. Like we had, like I know we were going to pick up on a conversation that we started last week about the social dilemma, and I still wanted to do that. But I had intended to come in and just be like, be like, well, I know we were going to talk about the social dilemma, but there's another piece of very, very 
important content uh, given the, the climate climate that we're in at this very moment. And I'm, of course, talking about Cobra Kai and the cliffhanger of a season finale at the end of season two. Spoiler alert, by the way. Uh, we're, we're probably going to drop some spoilers about Cobra Kai uh, and, and what's to come. But real quick. And I, mean, I, haven't, even, I haven't even gotten into... I, like I'm, I think I'm at season five of, or no, season two, season two number five. Is where I'm season at. two number. Oh, okay. Well, so. I can, then I'm, then we're not going to talk about Cobra Kai because I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> Fuck. I don't want to ruin it for you, man. Because oh, it's okay. like, dude, that it's such a good season. It's such. A, I will say it's this. A great wait, show, I'm, it's dude. A it's great such show. a good show. It's such a good. You watch show. it, Justin. It got. It was one of those things that I ignored because I was like, I don't need this in my life. Like, I, Karate Kid's good enough. And then more and more, too. it keeps coming up. And I see, like, the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, oh, shit, I missed the boat. I got to get on this. This looks actually pretty good. Well, dude, you yeah, see, dude. It, like, there's so many instances where a franchise is corrupted by a cash grab. And I know right. applying this to Bill and Ted sounds like, you know, totally <laughs> like a goofy thing to say. But like when the, when the new Bill and Ted came out, like Tony and I talked about it and it was fun. It was enjoyable. There was definitely some really smart stuff in it. There were some things that I really liked, but it definitely seemed like when I found out that they'd been working on it for years, I couldn't believe it because it definitely seemed very, like, slapped together and like, come on, it's a Bill and Ted movie. <laughs> Kiss your grandma. You know, like... I, it, I think a little bit of that's, like, a symptom of not having a budget, right? Like, you've been working on this thing for 20 years trying to land a deal to, like, get the money to build all those sets and all that, you know, all the shit that costs money in movies. And then you kind of end up with what you get after, like, a 30-year wait. Um, I do think that, like, Alex Winter probably put his whole ass and his heart into it but i also think that like the constraints show and uh ultimately i loved bill and ted 3 it was like just what i needed for in terms of like oh a feel-good movie that i don't have to like invest in crazy emotionally and i can ride nostalgia and enjoy it for what it is but also there's very much like that feeling of like yeah feels produced on the cheap like you were the first you were the first positive review like you and tony were the first positive reviews that i heard like Logan did not like it at all. He didn't like the guitar center plug at the end. Like, I'll tell you what I my I feeling yet to see it because dude, I wasn't really sold on it at first. I was just like, oh, do we really need this? Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I felt I the same know. way you felt about Cobra Kai, Justin. Like same thing. <laughs> I was like, God, what really? You know? And I Co- love those original films. I love them. Right, but that's that's kind of my point. Is like Cobra Kai as a series is one of the few times that I've seen like one of those nostalgia revisit type of things executed really, really very well, and in a way that they showed reverence for the original source material. Source material, like they adapted it from a book. (laughs) The the original or something. You know the the, from the ancient texts <laughs> from the ancient. translated. <laughs> it's really updated from a story from the Ming Dynasty. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's an old myth. No, the Russo uh, Dynasty. <laughs> no, I mean, but like, I think what I got from Bill and Ted was it wasn't so much that the constraints, the budget constraints showed themselves. It was that the runtime constraints showed themselves. 
Like, I could see that they had this bigger vision for the story, and it seemed like they had to rush through a lot of things, but, like, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who was planning on watching Bill and Ted face the music, like... All the scenes with their future selves were really, really cool. Like, yeah. they they were really, like, smart and funny and touching, especially the one where they go and they, um, they see their future selves on their deathbed, like, at the yeah. very end of their oh, lives. Shit. That was, dude, that was the <laughs> best part of the fucking movie, man. <laughs> it's like... Is like I felt like I really never got to know you, and or, and like all the like all those kind of jokes. They were so good, and um, I really loved uh, like the I, I like that they played on the the fact that the prophecy never came to be. Yeah, like, that was interesting. And they put out album after album after album, and none of them ended up being the song that brought the world together. And and to- when Tony was explaining the movie to me, he's like, he's like, yeah, dude, Wild Stallions basically become Ween and just do everything. And <laughs> I, so, like, I was like, okay, I'm into it. So, like, dude, and if it, Ween did the music for the movie, that would be fantastic. Yeah, that no. that would make me sign up immediately. The they you'll you'll lo- I think I think when you see it Gordo it is it is a good feel good movie it's a good cornball movie but I dare say it it uh, it seems like an illegitimate film by comparison to the other two like the other two actually seem like pretty well made films when compared to the third one like. Well, like particularly well written films compared to the third one. Like the character arcs are really cool, and you you get to know the the historical figures pretty well. And I I don't know, there was something about the world building in the first two that was really a lot of fun, and then in the, the yeah. third one just seemed kind of kind of slapped together. But um, I love the part where they're uh, they're sitting in the garage and they're talking about breaking up the band, and uh, and. Uh, Bill is like, what about the fans? And Ted's like, I think Tim and Gina will understand. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I loved about about Bill and Ted Face the Music is that, like, I feel like they perfectly plucked out every insecurity as a musician you could have about, like, what your long-term success could be. Like, you know, (laughs) that was perfect. They laid out, like, you know, everyone starts a band. They're like, we're going to be so big. Or at least, you know, like, this is going to be awesome is, like, generally your first thought with a band. And then as time goes on with the band, there's a certain resiliency that, like, has to be built to continue it no matter what, like, level of success you're, you're getting. And you almost look at that and see, like, man, 30 years of, of plowing through it and trying every genre and combination of instruments. And you're like, some of these conversations sound a little familiar. Oh, yeah. No, they did. Especially- it rang, it rang, dude, it touched a part of me that, like, like there was so much truth in some of those moments in that, in that film, okay, man. Okay, well, I, I definitely have to see it now. I definitely yeah. have to see it now. Dude, they become, they fall victim, <laughs> they, they fall victim to the Alaska thoughts big time, man. They're yeah. Like, oh. yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. good. God. The Alaska it cost me $20 to rent it on fucking... On Apple, but oh uh, shit, yeah, dude. Is it still? In, oh, oh, is it still in the like, uh, still in theaters preview mode or whatever? Like, yeah, it, it was when I watched theaters. it. I think it came out in three theaters, and like the big try was to like see if they could 
recoup any losses or, or make a profit off of the, the streaming stuff. And like, as a whole, I'm pretty on board with that idea of like, yeah, I'll pay 20 bucks to see a brand new movie in the comfort of my own home. If it's something that I'm like hyped to see, right. Bill and Ted for sure. It's but the I'm cost not of do- two movie tickets. Exactly. You know, if, yeah. If yeah. you and your significant other or you and a friend are sitting down watching it, that's the other thing is like Tony and a whole group of friends watched it on a projection screen in their backyard. You know what I oh, mean? That's perfect. That's you know, the way that's, to do it. That's I like the way that. to do it. That's fun. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mean, Sarah and I watched it and and we got a lot of enjoyment out of it. Logan talked about it like I was going to be rolling my eyes through the whole thing, but dude, I had a great time. <laughs> Dude, Logan's a tough customer. He he really is. He's he's too cool for school sometimes when it comes to movies, especially especially when it comes to his nostalgia. And like I said, he was like he's like I want you to watch for the super gross prog- product placement that happens in the movie and tell me what you think about it when you see it. And I'm looking through the movie and I'm looking through it and then at the very end there's the guitar center truck. And I'm like, "Oh, that must be what he's talking about." So so I'm not familiar with the with the the financing and the story of how the movie was made, really. I guess I didn't catch that. So, so this has been something they've worked on for a long time, and they ha- and they were trying to pull together all the resources to do it for decades, yeah. for what I understand. Oh wow! Decades, so okay, yeah. so so I mean, I don't know. It kind of makes kind of makes sense to have some big corporate heavyweights come in there and I mean, you got to throw get the their name somewhere. around. I mean, I mean, Cobra Kai with the Coors? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I know, dude. Jesus so much Christ. Coors Banquet and Cobra Kai. It made Coors me a little proud. Coors wrote that fucking show. <laughs> Coors wrote that fucking show, man. Coors Brakai, man. Coors- <laughs> <laughs> I get where Logan's are coming from with the, uh, the Guitar Center placement, because my first thought when they were unloading that single Guitar Center truck to basically put on an entire show, I was like, you couldn't get everything you needed at Guitar Center <laughs> to put on a show. Are you kidding me? It's gonna be some big gaps in that stage setup. Yeah, yeah, that is yeah, that is some insider info right there. That that would never be able to happen. They should have well, used the time travel to at least have one rehearsal with all those people they got together too. <laughs> like it, at least to give something of an opportunity for uh, Louis Armstrong and Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart to like like catch each other up on you know cultural norms over the past what was it 500 years 300 years something like that they're 300 years apart like one spoke german one didn't you know like they they could have at least had a little getting to know each other session i felt like i was a little worried when louis armstrong and Jimi hendrix showed up in austria you know, like to, to me, I was like, <laughs> given the current political climate, I'm like, oh boy, where is this going to go? Like, you know, I'm, I hate that. That was my first thought. Is like, I don't think that they would be welcome with open arms in terms of like just playing a guitar solo on the street. Uh, I wonder, I wonder if that's. Like I wonder that. if that's true. In in so what year? What year would have would have Mozart been around? Does anybody know off the top of their head? Do I have to look it up? 1987. Like, 19. <laughs> <laughs> Mozart <laughs> date of birth. Okay, so Mozart. Oh wait, seventeen fifty-six. So, so he was yeah. So he was around in the in the seventeen hundreds. So, but this is also in like cosmopolitan Europe. Yeah, like, and I don't know what 
Do you guys know anything about the Moorish Empire? Like, is like were they traveling about Western Europe at that point? Like, was there a lot of commingling within the Moorish Empire? Like, would it have been common for a couple of black dudes to show up in in Austria at that time? I don't know. The the Moorish or the Faith No Moorish? <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry, I lost track there. Yeah. The faith no, the faith no Moorish were actually in the second one though. <laughs> yeah, Jim Martin. I was gonna say like what what is the what is Bill and Ted without Carlin and and Jim Martin? Yeah, well, so the way that they played it is that Rufus's granddaughter was the emissary, oh. and there was Kristen like Shaw. yeah, no, she was great. And, oh, that's a good uh, choice. That's a good. That's a good role. No, right she there. was really good. And then they had a hologram, like a commemorative hologram, for Rufus. And of course, this also presupposed that like they had no contact with Rufus for the thirty years since their <laughs> their last adventure. Oh like, wow! They had, had, they had had no other adventures whatsoever. They had basically just been slugging away for thirty years. Trying to make the band happen. Yeah, it yeah. really felt like my <laughs> band a lot. <laughs> well, and they, they, I think that they pick up at the end of, in like the catch up in the beginning, they pick up at the end of two, whereas, like, you know, at the end of two, they got the ZZ Top beers. They use time travel to like get really good at their instruments. And they basically set up that they're going to go on tour with Death and all these other people that are a part of the band. And then through the movie, they start to reveal how the band actually fell apart. Like Death decides to make a solo album. You know, the Wild <laughs> right. Stallions decide to kick him out. Um, they play like they go from playing literally a show in the Grand Canyon to playing $2 taco night at some place near the airport. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. I would play $2 taco night. I'm not going to lie. Like, I'll play that if I get some free tacos out of it. I was going to say, if there's tacos involved, I'm there, dude. I, I'm sorry. I have no shame when it comes to tacos. Uh, I mean, Dave, I mean, Dave Grohl beer. showed up. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah oh, wow. Dude, I man, I don't want to give anything away, himself. Gordo, because I don't want to take away the enjoyment of, of the movie. Because it is a fun movie, but I don't know if I'll watch it again. Yeah. And 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 I guess gotcha. I guess the the point that I was trying to make initially was that I think had they done it as a series like Cobra Kai, it would have given them a bit more runway to develop the characters and kind of like cuz they tried to it kind of surprised they, me that they didn't try that or that they didn't, you know, think of well, that option. Well, when they started writing the movie, I'm uh, it wasn't, you know, series uh binge-worthy series on Netflix weren't a thing. You yeah. know what I mean? So it might have been something like they had in mind what they wanted to do for a film, but there was a lot of there was a lot of time travel theoretics that just got kind of like rolled out really quickly rather than elaborating on it and and like i remember in the first one it was like death and station were so, like in in bill and ted's bogus journey death and station and the evil robot uses were like 
like really strong characters. And in the first one, yeah. you had like all the historical figures and the whole thing, the whole character arc around Napoleon, and like they really put a lot of attention on developing those characters. And in this one, it was just like, hey, we got Jimi Hendrix to join our band, and hey, we got Louis Armstrong to join our band, and hey, we got Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, and they didn't really explain a lot about the uh, the flautist lady that they got. Who is that? <laughs> Enya? <laughs> a, an ancient flautist from... Uh, from uh, was it China or Japan? See, I'm so like this is how little they actually explain her. They just said she's the greatest flautist to ever live. And then there's a scene where Mozart in German asks her a bunch of questions, not subtitled, um, and then almost just not thought of until the final scene where they all have to play together again. They wow. were just they were just all kind of like non characters. You know what I mean? Like and the the guy who was playing Louis Armstrong just did like this really good kind of like impersonation of Louis Armstrong. He's like, hey, I've got kind of a silly voice. Isn't that weird? You know, like, <laughs> but, but, you know, Mozart was just kind of vaguely German or <laughs> vaguely Austrian. And then Jimi Hendrix was just like, he kind of talked like Jimi Hendrix a little bit. But I, I, I don't know. It just, it didn't seem like they really, I didn't feel like they had the time to develop the characters and follow like follow all the extra story stuff that they wanted to do it seemed to me like a lot of stuff trying to get crammed in there and then just throwing in a lot of like loose jokes to try and to try and make it fly and it just yeah. i don't know i don't know i'm looking at but tony talked about he's like he's like man what more could you want i had a great time He's like that's what that's some of the most fun I've had watching a movie in a while. That was, sounds like Tony, man. That sounds like Tony. He was like, I had my nostalgia glasses on, but you know, it was it was fun. Now Cobra Kai on the, yeah. Now Cobra <laughs> Kai on the other hand, that is a brilliant series. Oh man, they yeah they really nailed it. They really nailed it. So you 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 have not quite finished yet, then Gordo? Correct? No, I have not. I have not. Oh. And have you have you started it, Justin? I haven't started it, but I got a, a precursor that like turned me on to it big time. Kind of looking into like, hey, is it actually the kid that played Johnny playing Johnny in the series? Yes. yes. Okay, so that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. First off, and then the small bit of insight I've gotten is that it almost switches perspective from the original Karate Kid to looking at like, what if Danny's not a nice guy anymore, and what if Johnny. Well, not a great guy is becoming a better guy. Right. Is that kind of on the? It, all right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah it's, you, it, that's a real. Yeah. That's a, that's a good breakdown. It's a good breakdown of it. I think the 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 impression that I got, and this is, you know, and anyone who's out there listening, feel free to correct me on this. Um, a few years ago, there was a uh, a video on YouTube that was a piece of of fan fa- like fan art like a like a fan breakdown or whatever where basically the claim was made that Daniel LaRusso was the real bully and kind of breaks down scene by scene in the movie it's like look like <laughs> this guy's having an That's argument with his girlfriend not an uncommon thing this guy comes in and picks a fight he's new to town he doesn't know anybody and he's already being all presumptuous with it all these people it was the rewatchables it was yeah. the rewatchables that's what it was. Yeah, I, I listened to that podcast and I and I heard that one. Yeah, 
So totally. I, th- I think, <laughs> I think, unless they happened totally separately, I think that um, that was the impetus for the idea that basically, like, it's 30 years in the future or whatever it is, 20 years in the f- I can't remember, 30 years in the future, I think, and Daniel LaRusso is this super successful dude who owns a car dealership, and he was the two-time All-State champ, and, like, you know, karate was a big deal in the Valley when I was a kid and all this stuff, and so he's just had this trajectory of success, and then uh, Johnny Lawrence is just this, you know, washed up, divorced, alcoholic, you know, really just, like, angry dude, and then it just kind of follows him finding an opportunity for redemption and and reopening Cobra Kai and like having to come to terms with the the things about Cobra Kai that didn't work and and trying to rework them but but he like is totally stuck in the 80s and he's very much <laughs> obsessed with being badass and he's never had a like a smartphone and he like yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't have a computer. Yeah, he doesn't have a computer. He know anything about like all that shit. Yeah, yeah. Dude, one I love of my that. favorite favorite tropes right now is '80s guy dealing with modern world. Uh, <laughs> I, that is maybe my favorite thing. Like Ash versus Evil Dead was very much that, where it's like an '80s guy shoved yeah. into the modern world and trying to like operate the same way you would in the '80s and basically. Finding out you can't do that anymore. I so, love that fucking yeah, situation. Yeah. So, J- Justin, I consider you an an expert in in horror film. I consider you an expert in the drama. In fact, we should probably make mention that you're coming up on your yearly uh, your yearly um, horror movie countdown, right? Yeah, every year in October, I pick um, several. I think it's either one or two horror movies every day that and it's generally it's what i'm personally watching and because i'm a a maniac i decide to turn it into like every piece of ephemera that could go out on every piece of social media but like i really do sit down in september and theme out like i want to hit a week of just this type of movies or i want to hit a week of just movies from this director and then i generally throw wild cards in for the the weekend days but i'll publish that on axlasher.com axlasher um Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. But I love putting that out. It's like, I think that maybe even there's a bunch of people out in the world that think that that's all Axe Slasher is. Like, they're like, yeah, it's a yearly horror movie list. And then occasionally some music comes out of it for some reason. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I, I haven't followed it, like, to the letter or anything like that. But I have certainly, like, picked some movies from the list because Sarah and I... We we love Halloween. So October we binge on we binge on horror movies all month. But the one thing that when Sarah and I were talking about it because I mentioned that we had you on the show and we were talking about horror movies a little bit, she was talking about how your preference for horror movies different uh, differ. And we were talking about uh, being more into the psychological thriller type of horror stuff oh, whereas yeah. it's it That's seems it's like like you are drawn a little bit more to gore and and even like the slapstick end of things and <laughs> you know more like 
more like creatures and blood and guts and stuff like that. Do you think that's fair, or do you think you have a pretty broad taste in the horror world? Generally, I think I have a broad taste, but I do think you nailed me on the head there. Where like, if it's got a monster, if it's got a strange decapitation, I'm going to give it at least one watch. Um, the only caveat I'd probably add to that is I think that my favorite type of horror is when you can take a schlocky premise or schlocky elements and approach it with like almost a high art mind. Uh, I guess a good example of that is something like Mandy, where you know on its face it's a revenge story with like it's uh, a great movie. You know, yeah, it's a fun LSD one. LSD field motorcycle gangs and lots of decapitations and very grindhouse. Like yeah. But the way Panos Cosmatos approaches that with just like the choices he makes in capturing those things, that's where it starts to get elevated for me. And that's when I get excited is like, because I almost consider that analogous to like writing heavy metal, where heavy metal has kind of this perception that it's not uh, a highbrow art, right? But, and I think that when people approach it as if it were such by paying homage to their process and like really giving over to making your process part of the journey of making the thing. That's when I get excited versus just kind of thinking like I got 10 songs to write and I'll bust that out over a weekend. That interests me way less than like, I thought about this song as the coalescence of three perspectives and each verse is a different perspective here. Um, that's when I get excited. Yeah. Right. That's right. fucking cool. I did uh, like dude, Mandy uh, a lot. Dude, Beyond the Black Rainbow is one of my favorites. I've seen that so many times, and like the the soundtrack for that, that is so good. The guy from Black Mountain that that did the score is so fucking good. Beyond it's the Black amazing. Rainbow is what it's Beyond, called. Oh yeah, man. Let me let me write that down so that I can watch that later. That's that's the kind of shit that I did. I like that kind of weird. I don't know, kind of acid tinge mystic bizarre david lynchian almost kind of bullshit i love that but yeah. i also am a big fan of the of the gore sometimes too because my dad my god my dad loved gory movies and he would love just like really? rewind he would rewind the parts and he's like <laughs> oh my god look at how that head exploded he just like he just like take it back he's like how did they do that is that cornflakes like just like you know just like he's just like holy shit you know what's the charge they're using in that you know like I mean, it's, it's just it was great so he actually really... has he actually had a curiosity in the in the production end of it absolutely that's really absolutely. cool he he ate it up like crazy and then like yeah like he would oh yeah man he he loved that stuff he would laugh so hard just when when somebody's head got taken off or half their body just fucking fell off or what like he just he thought it was so great and he really instilled in me a joy for seeing that kind of shit happen cuz it cuz there is it's it's kind of it's kind of hilarious and there's a jubilation it's it is almost like slapstick comedy like you were saying it's like right. it's like holy shit like I mean, that I loved happened? that. I loved that stuff a lot when I was a kid. Like I, I loved trauma films, and I loved, you know, like um, Dead Alive and things like that. And and of course, I love Evil Dead. But I think my palate just changed as I got older. Like the reason I brought it up, uh, Justin, is because. I was going to see what your thoughts were on Ash versus the Evil Dead because I actually stopped watching it. Really? Like, I, yeah, it, you know, it just, it didn't, that actually is something that I didn't think worked really particularly well as a series. I kind of like the, you know, the, the group of sequels, you know, that kind of followed, well, I guess really only technically 
two sequels because one and two were just the same movie made twice, correct? Right. Two was essentially like, we could do that again, but better. Um, yeah, we'll yeah, just yeah. call it two. Uh, yeah. And then three, three obviously goes in a completely different direction with the time travel aspects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, dude, and Army of Darkness is like one of my, it, it probably is my favorite movie in the franchise just because it was like, it was a good action adventure slash horror slash slapstick comedy like i really like i enjoyed it but i would i don't even know if i would put army of darkness in like a straight horror category like it it was definitely more of a like action adventure fantasy with demons in it right right and that's that kind of rings true with ash versus evil dead right like when you watch that series i think i went into it with the expectation that maybe it would be like they're gonna bring scary back to this this franchise Right. And I don't think that that's necessarily what they were going for. I almost feel like they were trying to do a natural iteration off of Army of Darkness, for better or worse, um, with that general premise of, like, let's take an 80s man and make force him to be a hero in the modern world and all the, the different things that that entails. I did like, I loved the cast. Uh, I thought Dana De La Russo, I think was her name. and um, She was the main, the main heroine in it? Yeah. yeah. I thought she was amazing. And um, I'm, I'm blanking on on Pablo's uh, like the actor's name, but I also liked that character too, and the way that they like almost switched the gender expectations of like what an '80s movie would be, where he's more submissive and more of like a, um, a healer. If you're trying to break it down into like video game terms, right. and she's more of the like the new version of the Ash, warrior. and then you have. Yeah, she's the warrior, and then you've got Ash kind of overseeing everything, and the only person, unfortunately, that has any idea what's actually going on throughout the entire series. It's like, the dumbest character is the one who knows the most. I'll watch that all day. <laughs> right, That's right, one of my right. favorite things. Um, I thought it went took some weird directions. Uh, I cut it a lot of passes just because... I think that overall, that's one of my favorite series of movies of all time is everything Evil Dead related. And I've got a big soft spot for Bruce Campbell in general, right. uh, just kind of like looking at this guy who's become a king of B-movies. And that's always something that I've like the level of success I always see for myself is like, yeah, you're the king of the trash heap. You're not exactly like, <laughs> you know, you're not going to chart on Billboard, but maybe on this like certain pile of trash that's very special to you and several other people, you could, you know, reach the top of that and, you know, kind of it's shout like and be- <laughs> it's like being divine or something like that. You know? Right. Right. That's always been way more appealing to me than like any traditional measure of success. Maybe that's a little bit of uh, self-consciousness or, or what have you. But I think that that's like the sweet spot is like if you could be divine i mean i probably could be divine if i hooked up with the right john waters but um. i I like i like um no i know what you're saying i know what you're saying though about like the different types of um of celebrity yeah like like there are people who to me if i met them i would lose my mind you know but my parents would have no idea who they are you know right. what I mean? And and oh, Bruce sure. Campbell is one of those yeah. characters. Yeah. And I remember um, when we were very young, uh, our old drummer Brandon and uh, Jordan and Jerry all went on a road trip to go on the horror co- to go to the horror convention in in Los Angeles, and uh, Bruce Campbell was going to be at the event. And they uh, they waited in line to get uh, to get his autograph and to get uh, their picture taken with Bruce Campbell, and they got 
rip roaring baked before they went in. <laughs> and so so they're approaching the line and they get up to the front and I'll never forget this as they like introduce themselves to Bruce Campbell and he's like signing the pictures and he goes, So, uh, where are you guys from? And they're like, Oh, we're from Denver. And Bruce Campbell looked at him and goes, Oh, the mile high city. <laughs> And they, they were like, it was awesome. He knew. Yeah. I don't know. I love, I, that. I love that. I love, like, I'm, I was excited to see that they attempted the series. Like I said, I lost interest. It didn't hook me. But what I did really like is I loved the reboot. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the straight-up horror movie reboot that they made was legitimately scary and um, is that, see, yeah because i i didn't see that one is that is that worth seeing then i 100%, think it's totally 100%. worth seeing it's a different mythology for sure it's like the same same story pieces but you can't go into it with the same expectations you have with like evil dead one and two but right. i think that was it fede alvarez directed that yeah, something um, like that. And then at the Ash character is is a female character in that one as well. Yeah. And um awesome. I can't wait to watch it then. Dude, it's <laughs> it's like they took the like the violence and terror of the original two Evil Dead movies and the like the de- the demonic surreality of it all, but it didn't have the Bruce Campbell slapstick side to it, the goofiness to it. Like the kind of They removed the Three Stooges element, which is something that (laughs) when Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell were growing up, they would make these little, you know, eight millimeter films with each other and 16 millimeter films with each other. This is something I got out of um, Bruce Campbell's biography. But essentially their hugest influence was always the Three Stooges. And they would even like name cameras after the different Three Stooges or in their shorthand talking about like when Sam's telling Bruce what he needs. It's like, I need a little more Mo in this scene or I need a little more Curly in this scene. <laughs> so like that is 100% part of like their DNA. And I think Fede Alvarez came in and he's like, I don't understand that at all. I don't right. think that that should be yeah. a part of the story. It was, um, I mean, it was... It was like legitimately a terrifying horror film, and it was, it was gory and violent, and like, um, and everybody dies. Like, <laughs> but pretty much, I, I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head if the Ash character dies, if the main character dies, but pretty much everybody dies in the most like horrible way possible. And it was, it's a fun movie, and there's some scenes in it that are like. I'm a very, um, it drives Sarah nuts, but I'm a very uh, dramatic person to go see a horror movie with in the theater. <laughs> like, I I jump, and I put my hand over my mouth and go, oh, when really scary stuff happens, and, you know. When oh, you we- mean like the time that uh, you got surprised in your van? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah that happened oh, i wonder if God. i can find that video on here somewhere i'm Did sure it video, will get... i saw it pop up not too long ago and i just god the the screen grab of your face on that is just <laughs> it gets sent priceless. to me it gets sent to me annually if not biannually it's um, it's by my so awful good friends. though it's so good the reaction is everything justin on have the... you seen that a, a, a buddy of mine oh yeah 
Oh yeah. yeah, I love that video. Like pretty dear to my heart. Best, yeah, best shorts. You know, in a in the uh, surprise category for for, for, for twenty eighteen. Best short form surprise documentary goes to. It's a hot gotcha dog moment. man terrified by friend. <laughs> I think when I first saw it, I thought that you were acting in, in the way that you were surprised in that. And then I think over several viewings, I finally clicked. It was like, oh, no, this is a genuine reaction. No, no, no. I was scared. I get, dude. Yeah. I'm, I'm a good the, person to scare. It's fun to scare me because I, dude, I yell the, and I make a lot of noise and I jump and I make funny faces. <laughs> <laughs> dude, One uh, more thing about the, the Evil Dead remake. So when that came out, it was, I had like pretty low hopes for it. I went to see it in the theater. And at that time, there was a company called Platinum Dunes that was essentially buying up um, a bunch of different franchises and doing reboots of them. So if you saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot from the early thousands, that was kind of their first foray. Kind of a Michael Bay-backed company. So a lot of the the Bayhem influence got injected into all that stuff and one of the like hallmarks of those platinum dunes movies was a cast of completely unlikable unrealistic people that you were supposed to identify with as victims and i felt like when evil dead starts it kind of like lays out that same formula and i remember just being like oh damn it this is gonna suck this is gonna be a bad movie and there's a very key moment in the middle of the movie where basically like everything turns on its head and you get told that like we're not making one of those movies. This is actually going to be scary. There's going to be a lot of really uncomfortable scenes in it. And we just killed any semblance that you had. This is going to be a Platinum Dunes movie. And I feel like maybe I'm making that up, but I also feel like it was intentional to like get that reaction from the super steeped into the community people of like, oh, it's just going to be another Platinum Dunes style remake. And then at one point he just goes, no, it ain't. You're going to like this. Trust is, that, is that the style where it's like, like everything's super gritty and greasy and wet and <laughs> like a lot of it's actually lit exactly like we're lit right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know what right. I mean? Dude, on the Literally, other you'll see like a Jessica Alba or something like that in there where you're just like, I kind of don't believe these characters because everyone's way too good looking. It's but that... she's got a dirty <laughs> shirt. Her yeah, shirt exactly. is dirty. <laughs> There's blood on her wife beater, man. Come on. Dude, on the other on the other side of that, complete polar opposite side of that, I saw I had an opportunity to see uh Evil Dead the musical. How was that? And it was fucking brilliant, man. Really? Like, I I was not I, I wasn't expecting much. I was just like, yeah, let, you know, let's get these are like, you know, ten dollar tickets or whatever and we'll go check this out. It was playing in, in uh we had to we had to go to Topeka, Kansas to watch it because we were we were in Lawrence and it was like, Wow, this is playing in Topeka. It's like hell yeah, we'll go see that and put on your best dress, honey. We're like, going to Topeka. Oh man, I, it was I'm so, taking you to a show. So fucking good. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I want to see that again right now. <laughs> like Dude. as soon as it was over, I was like, I want to see that again. I want to hear all those songs. I want to. I want to fuck. It was brilliant. I kind of like fun. that. I kind of like that era. That like new era of musical theater that is like really accessible to the general public. You know, because I mean, I've always liked musical theater. I mean, I I majored in theater in high school i've you know been a drama kid my whole life but 
You know, I thought it was really cool. Like you saw kind of rent was the beginning of that. And even that was still probably a little bit like that was still kind of for the drama kids. But then you've got (laughs) like, you know, Evil Dead, the musical and Book of Mormon. And now we've got Hamilton. And uh, and and I, I think it's pretty cool that they've they've come. You know, there's been this like new wave of of uh, writers and choreographers and and directors who are putting out shows like that. It's definitely a medium that needed to change. It needed to evolve because like that, that whole thing, like I, I, you know, I've, I've seen a few Broadway shows and like, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's good. It's great, whatever. But like that, that, yeah, it just, it just really needed some fresh air breathed into it, you know, for sure. There's a right. Toxic Avenger musical coming out, right? Or has that already been released? Oh, oh man! I'm sure, there's a Toxic Avenger musical in the oh, works. Oh god, I would love to see that. That'd be yeah, great. Love there was a Bill awesome. and Ted musical, and it did horrible. Oh shit! <laughs> I yeah. wonder if any of that made its way into Face the Music. <laughs> Probably. Um, it, it, I've looked at. I think we may have even looked it up on the show before. But there was a bit. You know what? We totally did look it up on the show. But there is. There was a wow. Broadway. There was a Broadway musical, uh, or maybe it was like an experience at Universal Studios or something like that. Oh yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a Halloween Horror Nights Bill and Ted thing in Florida. Is there really? <laughs> well, there used to be. I think that they killed it uh, in 2018. Wow. Yeah, trying to just like <laughs> they were just like trying to drop a drop a couple characters that people like into something like like Bill and Ted meet Frankenstein. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like if you go to the Halloween Horror Nights in in California, there's a whole Jabberwocky show that you're just like, does this is this still relevant to anyone? Like. I had, every time I when I first went, I had to go like, "What is Jabberwockies?" And Doctor Girlfriend's like, "That's a dance group. You haven't heard of it? They were big, you know, ten years ago." And I was like, "Not completely, not my world." Jabberwocky was a dance group. I thought you were talking about the Terry Gilliam film Jabberwocky, <laughs> the one, nope. the one that was about the scary monster from Alice Through the Looking Glass or whatever. If right? Only. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what I that's what I think of when I hear Jabberwocky. Yeah. Well, this is Jabberwockies with two E's and two E's and a Z. Oh, see if it's got the two E's oh. and the Z, that's a like dance the, group. Yes. Okay, so it's it's no no relation to Lewis Carroll. No, unfortunately, not. <laughs> I would have been in if that were the case. But once I found out what it actually was, I was like, let's get the hell out of this line and yeah. go check out something spooky. So what's what's the scariest movie? Or top three scariest movies, like legitimately scary, that like haunted you after the fact that you guys have seen in the last couple of years? Oh, God, what a good question. Last couple of years, um, immediately stuff that comes to mind is, you know, Ari Aster work and... um, Ari Aster, so like... um, Hereditary, hereditary, and, uh, hereditary yeah. Midsummer, like, Midsummer, Midsummer was so good. <laughs> Midsummer was like uh, it was like its own genre of horror, though. Like, yeah. yeah, like what do you call that? You call that like like it's like like isolated culture horror, like that type of stuff, where it's it's basically like taking an isolated population and just like the the protagonists in the story are just getting immersed in some sort of cuckoo nut job outside culture like is well, that that's what- kind of like 
cannibal movies from the 80s and the the 70s and the 80s were very much like the same format of like here's relatable characters that we're going to shove into the the jungle with a bunch of cannibals this was like a completely different version of that but still the same premise of everyone here you can relate to is now stuck into a situation none of us can relate to unless we actually have family that are in some sort of norwegian slash you know swedish cult of uh, beautiful blonde people that kill each other when they get to 76 years old what's so scary about that movie is like how bright and like how like vibrant and well lit like it takes place one of all the most in brilliant daylight. things about it it's one of the most brilliant things about it. yeah some of the most intensely horrific things happen in just the brightest setting Right. Yeah. It's it's just whoa. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the the normalcy that the rest of like the outsiders in Midsummer kind of treat everything that's going on like yeah, this is what we do. Like this is part of our culture. It'd be like us taking someone to a show and it freaking them out and them seeing like moshing for the first time and having no context to it. They're like, right. this is crazy violent. Like why are you why are you so stoked about this? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's just what we do. We run yeah. in circles and we hit each other. Hereditary got <laughs> Hereditary got me pretty good. Um, man, I'm trying to think of the like last movie that I saw that was like I liked. Um, I got a lot of good scares out of the the first It reboot, but I also kind of I didn't like the kids. I did not like the kids <laughs> in the new one. Like See, I, thought, I didn't like I didn't like the second one. I did. I haven't I seen the second I, I, one yet. I don't know. Like I, I it, it just for me, it, it kind of felt flat a little bit. I, you know, it, I feel like for the most part, it did it, its thing. Um, you know, it, it did it pretty well, but just it didn't quite land for me. Right. I don't know. But yeah, but second I, one, I agree. I agree. Second one didn't hit as hard. Um, I feel like it's almost they. Pennywise was so scary in the first one. Like the first time I think I've actually been scared of a clown, right? Like the clowns generally I find to be the most boring version of a horror villain. And then Pennywise using that as like, not a clown. That's just my subterfuge to get you to, you know, see all this other demonic shit. I liked that a lot. Yeah. I thought, I thought the new clown, I thought the new Pennywise was annoying. Um, it like, I, I, I found him to be off-putting and not like in in a way that like a a movie monster is supposed to be like when he's doing the the dancing on the back of the train car I was like shut the fuck up no <laughs> no like like Tim Curry to me the fact like Tim Curry oh, as yeah. Pennywise to me seemed like the fact that he was a clown was incidental you know yeah. what I mean? It's pretty yeah, hard yeah. to beat Tim Curry in that role. I mean, he's he's pretty much the gold standard, is in my opinion. Well, like, and they didn't have much in the way of special effects at that time. And there's something about that, like film stock from that time, like from that time period, you know, that just makes things a little scarier. Like if you watch, like if they tried to reboot Creep Show right now, it would probably suck. There's something about there's something about that grainy 80s 90s film stock and just I don't know there's just something about it in like like practical creature effects and and the limited um CGI stuff that they were able to do in the limited like like how they had to like do stop motion animation for a lot of of like the mm-hmm. animated sequences like that stuff to me looks more real than 
the flashiest tricks that modern filmmaking has to offer. I can agree yeah. with that. I mean, like yeah. the, the film grain thing is really important. That's like a huge debate on like shooting on digital or shooting on film and why people like Tarantino are so like gung ho on shooting on 70 millimeter film versus I used to work at a digital camera company that made movie cameras. Like that was the big deal is like they were always going for the purest version of like what's actually being seen versus letting any of the process show through. And the people that commit to film are like, no, it's a process. Like I'm capturing light on this little piece of chemically treated plastic that, you know, this is a magic trick and whatever comes out of it comes out of it. I'm going to do my best to control it versus on a digital camera. You're kind of just like, hold on, let's get it perfect before we even start hitting record. And you can see all that. You have all that insight. You know, I think it's different, different strokes for different folks. I think that there's merit on both sides, but I do think that on the digital side, you get complacent. Whereas on the, the film side with like the physical, like physically shooting things specifically like creature effects and things like that. It's got to look good in real life. Like it has to look good to the people on the set. If it's going to look good for the camera versus now you can put Bill Skarsgård in a green suit and you know, you can make whatever you want happen on set. It just looks like a dude in a green suit. You don't really care versus really trying to nail it before you even start shooting. I think it's completely absolutely. Yeah. This, this, this whole thing about like film versus digital is very similar to the analog versus digital argument and in production, audio production. It's like, there's, I don't know. I'm a person that's like, for me, producing, I like to get things sounding great before like going into a session. I, I need to have everything sounding as good as it can possibly sound. And then after that, like, let's start, let's start manipulating things. Let's do things with compression EQ or whatever, you know, panning or effects or whatever. It's like doing it, doing everything, you know, like, and getting everything set up is kind of like that old school way. And I really dig that. And even though I right. use digital equipment, I, you know, I use digital capturing. It's, I, I need to get everything sounding as good as I possibly can before, like, cause I mean, fix it in post is an awful that did, idea. That wasn't really a thing. <laughs> right. Right. But yeah. So, uh, so Justin, tell me, tell me some more about, uh, some of the the scariest movies that you've seen in the last in the last couple of years because I'm trying to get my list together for what we're gonna watch for for the month of October this year and dude and like I said I trust your expertise what should I be watching yeah man there's a couple um, one that came out this year was the Invisible Man the oh, you know yeah. made by Lee Wannell, who I think is like maybe one of my new favorite filmmakers. He made a film called Upgrade, which I think Aaron, you in particular, Upgrade would like. is great. Yes, exactly. Dude, up, so. I saw Upgrade in the theater. That was dude. I dude. I yeah, love. I love sci-fi thriller. Now. I love futuristic sci-fi thrillers, dude. They're so fucking good. Upgrade was yeah. great. Upgrade's Upgrade. amazing. So his his version of the Invisible Man. I actually just watched that a couple of nights ago. And it's super good. So good. So good. Um, everything I think you're looking for in terms of like, and I think maybe even Sarah will enjoy this. Like it's got a huge psychological aspect to it. Like we all know that someone's going to be invisible and someone's going to be doing terrible things while invisible. That's kind of baseline, but the reasoning behind it and the relationships that kind of drive it and the, even the way that it's done. If you know anything about psychology, which I think you do, you're going to recognize a whole bunch of like things that 
you read about being played out on the screen. And if you don't have that psychological background, it's still scary. But even so, it's you- it's mostly um, it's mostly about stalking, isn't it? It's. I would say that it's more about narcissism and okay. like the like the oh, narcissism yeah. sociopathy kind of like. Because there's certain things like all those, you know, that shorthand that people that have dealt with narcissists have, which is like dealing with flying monkeys, the narcissist prayer, all those kind of things play out without being expressly like, you know, that doesn't point to it and label it. But if you're understanding of those things, you're like, oh, shit, that's exactly what's happening here. Um, It also gets into like some really deep ideas about abuse cycles and like the links that someone will go to abuse another person because they feel like they've lost control of them in that kind of narcissistic relationship. Yeah. I thought it was a really good study on domestic violence. Like I thought it was just like, this is, I mean, that that's, that's heady territory to get into for like kind of a horror film. Like it's, it's, you know, it's kind of walking a line, but they did it so well. That's so good. Well, but, but they're also, you know, film changes, having to do with what the anxieties are in the world at the time. Like, I I love watching... I don't know if either of you guys follow Wisecrack at all on... um on YouTube, but they they do a lot of philosophical deep dives into media, and they did they did an epi- they do a lot of stuff about how like families are portrayed, and the way that villains are portrayed, and the way that uh, different movies were playing on the anxieties at their time, and you know we're living in an era where that is definitely an anxiety that that people are experiencing is the anxiety of of being in 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 an abusive relationship or being you know the the possibility of being stalked or dealing with a with a narcissist like like it it seemed like um have you guys watched you yet I haven't seen you, no. The the, the series on Netflix that is Mm -hmm. all from the perspective of a like a a stalker from a psychopath. Oh Um, shit. Yeah, no, it's and it definitely and the the main character is this, you know, young girl living in Brooklyn who like you know, is is single and an empowered woman on the the dating scene, and you know it it talks about stuff in twi- uh, uh, Tinder and social media. Like the the guy who's stalking her has been able to create a relationship by just looking her up on social media platforms and and being able to use various types of technology that are around to like dupe her into having a relationship, and so it was it was very like topical and relevant and and so i'm wondering if this remake of the invisible man is like is tapping into some very like current anxieties that are going on especially among women i think so i think that's one of horror's jobs like if you look at art having certain jobs in societies i think one of horror's jobs is to reframe and help people contextualize like the anxiety that they do feel out in the world. Like I think that some of the most successful horror movies have done that. George Romero made a whole career out of it with each decade being a different type of zombie movie, essentially telling a different kind of like shining the light on different parts of, of societal ills. Uh, I think he nailed it with the invisible man being like, you know, there's certainly something to be said about a male 
version of the species causing utter hell for a female uh, via technology. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's what's crazy about it is like it's just it, it represents exactly what it is. Those behaviors, that's exactly what happens. But it but it does it in such a crazy framework, you know? such yeah. a weird context for it it's great i thought it was yeah. brilliant <laughs> yeah what if the stalker was a billionaire and had like <laughs> a, limitless funds and and time to yeah. dedicate to his his craft of stalking that's uh, another, really scary some other movies that have, i've really been liking are movies by robert eggers and i want to kind of preface this like you said scary stuff and scary stuff that sticks with me is thing that gets in my brain and makes me think for days and days afterwards versus like Gore and and jump scares are more like a, a roller coaster where they're fun, but they're over by the time the movie's over. I'm right, not sitting right, there right, like right. waking up in a cold sweat, but certainly like movies like The Witch and, and the, the Lighthouse Witch was so good. Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen The Lighthouse. Sarah loved The Witch too. So so Lighthouse The Lighthouse is pretty crazy. Is it? It's wild. It's different. It's definitely like, even from the choice that Eggers makes to shoot the movie in four three instead of sixteen by nine, just goes into like that idea of like even the screen space is isolated. So these two guys have to get together. Uh, Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are amazing in that movie. Uh, you could make the argument that it doesn't make a lot of sense, and I would make the argument that being stuck with another man for months at a time inside of a small area will start to not make sense no matter who you are. Well, yeah, right. it's it's incredibly claustrophobic. And movies don't have to make sense. The story doesn't always have to make sense. One of my well, favorite things is, like, real life like I was saying earlier, sense. like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, David Lynch is one of my favorite filmmakers, and I thought that the Twin Peaks The Return was one of the best things I'd seen in the last couple of years. Like, it's amazing what he did with those characters. It's amazing what he did with those, with that subject and that feel. It was just amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I, there are some films where the only purpose of the film is to is to create a motif, you know, is to create a mood, whether or not, you know, it has any sort of coherent narrative, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's about, and sometimes that feeling of like things not be, making sense is, is part of playing into the, um, you know, creating that feeling of uh, uh, disor disorientation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, There's a, a couple that. more picks. <laughs> yeah, keep it going. Keep it going. So this is, I can't remember what year this came out, but it's a movie called Exists. And it's directed by um, the director who made the Blair Witch Project. But it's a Bigfoot movie. And it's explicitly a Bigfoot movie. And it's essentially about a group of kids that go up into the woods, um, get into a bunch of trouble, and Bigfoot comes a knock in. And it's shot in kind of a found footage way. But it's since it's more modern, it's along the lines of like this guy's more documenting things with gopros everywhere because mm -hmm. he's like yeah we can make cool youtube content or we can make you know cool stuff like this uh and they almost by accident kind of become an enemy of bigfoot and some of the scariest bigfoot shit i think i've seen came from that movie like generally bigfoot either gets it's not like, scary <laughs> right dude in a rubber suit or the movie's not about bigfoot like those are kind of the two options you get with bigfoot <laughs> movies and this one was completely different where it's like playing on that idea of this thing actually existing and it has its own set of protocols when it comes to stalking 
and it has its own like code of vengeance and all these different things that like make sense from an animalistic but also a this is a smarter thinking being kind of way really like that movie exists um i do i do like uh i do like jordan peele's stuff um yes i liked us and i liked get out um i also like that when jordan peele makes a movie he make like when he makes a horror movie his comedy skills still come out in it but not in a manner that that undermines the horror part of it you know what i mean like he's really good at being funny to kind of break up the tension a little bit but still telling like a really scary story i saw us in the theaters and i really enjoyed it Yeah. yeah us is great uh get out's great i think that that whole idea of like someone who's really good at humor oftentimes i think that can translate to horror because i think at their core they're both art forms that are trying to elicit an involuntary reaction so laughter is almost involuntary it's like you're coercing laughter out as a reaction to like the thoughts that you're you're basically piecing together in a certain way i think that horror is the same it's like thing. an allergic like, reaction almost yeah i think that yeah. fear is the same thing where you're coercing it out by the choices that you make to show something over time like movies that are just we've all seen horror movies that are packages horror and, you know, it's, it's just not scary. It doesn't fit with you. And you wonder if that director is like, have you dealt with humans before? Do you know, like, what they like and dislike? Um, and I feel like that's the same feeling you get when you're watching a comedian that isn't resonating with you. You're like, none of this feels true at all. This feels very... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. well, that's that's the, the, like, it gets at some sort of, it shines a light of some sort of unconscious truth. Like all, yeah. like I heard uh, John Cleese said this really, really profound thing that that stuck with me, and is really I think the most sound argument against political correctness and comedy, um, which is basically that all comedy is criticism, and nothing is above criticism. And so it's about kind of like unearthing the truths of that that criticism. Whereas in horror, it's like almost the same thing structurally, but it's more about shining a light on horrific human truths, like yeah. shining a light right. in the dark about things that we have, like almost your ability to comprehend and follow these horrific plot lines and these horrific events kind of like shows you something about yourself as far as like being able to follow those logical twists and turns and and understand what's going on shows you more about what's inside you than what is in the content of the movie if that makes sense no, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down, and I would I would agree mostly. I think that the at, like thing that I may add to that is that if you are approaching criticism, doesn't work when it doesn't land right. You know what I mean? Like if you have if you have a buddy or having a heart to heart, and you have a true criticism of them, you do have to think in certain ways of like how can I lay this criticism out for them so that it'll be useful to them rather than hurtful. And I think that's where the artistry comes in in terms of like horror or comedy, which is like, sure, you could have a really offensive premise. And if you can artfully walk through that offensive premise in a way that 
you know, elicits humor and actually brings that truth in ways that people can understand. Well, that's really agree funny. with and that they can right. they can agree with the truth in it and have the experience of either laughter or unease. Like right. uh, like horrific unease, you know what I mean? Like something where a truth happens to the point that it elicits a an abreaction of some sort. Right. You know, one euphoric and one, you know, not so euphoric, which is interesting that we, like, have this desire to, like, have the shit scared out of us. It's so funny. Well, fear and humor both kind of rely on shock to a certain degree. Like, shock is a, a key aspect of both, I think, whereas, like, shock and fear brings you completely to one end of the spectrum versus being shocked and then walk through to like the light for the humor side. It's almost weird that they have that same inflection point of shock where it's Mm -hmm. like either I'm surprised and shock, I think are very similar kind of ideas. And oftentimes my favorite comedy is what's surprising either being like the premise is surprising or the way that we brought this crazy shocking premise into an area of agreeability and amicability. That's always like delightful. Yeah. Um, Another one that I really liked, and this is kind of, this just popped into my head, is even though it's not particularly scary, I really loved Cabin in the Woods. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a, that, that, that's the way, it's a super fun movie, you know, especially if you are a general horror movie fan. You know, it's like it's like oh, they've got all the tropes just living in this one, you know, containment unit, and then they set them all loose. It's it's fucking great. I love that shit, dude. So well, just the yeah, bring in like because it was really big to talk like in horror right now. It's really big to focus on the tropes and the tropes only. And I think that there's two camps. There's the have the trope so that people recognize that this is a horror movie, and then there's have the trope to bring attention to the trope and make fun of it or like use it in, in a certain degree. And that whole movie is taking all the tropes, putting them together and giving a backstory to the tropes, which is mm-hmm. like all that horror movie stuff exists because there's actually a secret cabal trying to stop the end of the world by, you know, collecting all this different types of fear responses. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, so what else you got for some picks for us? Some stuff that yeah. I should be checking out. I've got one that is, I consider it to be Axe Slasher the movie. And it's probably more the style of what people are trying or going to expect from me. And it's a movie called Behind the Mask, the story of Leslie Vernon. And I don't know if you've seen this or not, but it's I essentially a, it's a fake documentary about a guy who's trying to be like a mythological slasher. So it's like a documentary crew is following this guy named Leslie Vernon and he's laying out like they go through all the slasher tropes, but he's talking about why they're important to establishing his mythology so that he can be like, no, 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 no. You see, you have to establish the final girl early on because that's not a game time decision. The whole thing is about her. So we have to build it around her. And then it talks about like his exercise schedule and all these different things. So he's like, it's a lot of hard work to actually be able to catch up to people. But when they're looking at you, only be walking like when they're not looking at me, I'm in a full on sprint. I'm taking advantage of like setting up, <laughs> setting up all these different like corridors and trap doors. And I know every single beat of this evening and it's all going to lay out so that when this evening's over and the people put this together, they're going to piece together the story. I want them to piece together so that I can live on and be Freddie, be Jason, like all this like weird shit, even getting into the point of like him and his father having a talk about like, you know, back in the old days, you know, the old guys, Michael, 
uh, Jason, you know, we didn't have to do all this, but you got to set yourself apart now. Like, this would be enough to just put the mask on and go out and <laughs> chop a couple of college kids up. But now you got to really make it special to get people to pay attention. That's great. Uh, I think that that in and of itself is very much what Axe Slasher is based off of, is like mining those tropes to find something interesting about it. And then also there's other analogies like, could the production of the movie be better? Absolutely. Could it sound better? For sure. Um, but ultimately, it's a very fun movie that I get a kick out of. Um, I could definitely see people not enjoying it, but I think that it hits the right level of nerdery and all those things. Not a scary movie, but a very fun movie for right. Halloween. It's just, it's uh, it's way harder to scare people anymore. Yeah. You know? Like, I, I have seen movies that that were, you know, probably would have made people literally piss their pants in the seats 20 years ago, but it just it just doesn't work now. Like, do you think that we are just getting desensitized? Like, it's like, it's, again, to draw the, the, the comedy parallel, you know, if you watch very old Eddie Murphy, let's say, like, it's not funny. Like yeah. it, do, it doesn't it doesn't elicit the response and you know Eddie Murphy was brilliant at his craft and he's funny yeah. and he has since done other stuff like when he did his um when he accepted his Mark Twain award like and did his Bill Cosby impression because it was like it was like after Bill Cosby got busted and he yeah. started making the jokes about does Bill have to give his award back or what's the deal with that and starts <laughs> did you have you guys seen that. No, no. Oh, it's amazing. Dude. It's amazing. So, so Eddie Murphy gets um, gets the Mark Twain Award for comedy, and he goes out on stage and he he starts going. It like the very first thing he says is like, "Man, this is crazy." So many people. He's like, he's like, so does 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 Bill Cosby have to give his back or what? And then he just for the whole rest of his speech, he's just like, "Who is Hannibal Burris?" And like starts like. <laughs> Talking all this shit, and it was so, so good and funny. And it was an old character that he did. You know, he he made fun of fun of Bill Cosby, and and some of it was some of his funny stuff. But like, if you go back and you watch, like, I guess I could maybe get a few like nostalgic laughs, like when he's doing the Bill Cosby stuff, or he's he's doing his Richard Pryor impression or something like that. But it just doesn't. It doesn't trip the same switches because society has changed, because we have changed and we become more aware of of certain things in the world. Not to mention the fact that uh, it's really socially outdated, um, yeah. you know. But I'm wondering if with films like Hereditary and um, in midsummer, if we're going to start seeing this like new wave of of horror that goes to a totally different level than we thought possible, or if almost everything has been done in the genre that can be done in it, I don't know if that's even the. I get what you're saying. I don't know if that's the issue. I think with Ari Aster in general, he's always said that he's not a horror director. He's always said that he's a filmmaker. And he enjoys like adding horror elements to his films. I think that there are a lot of horror as a community is kind of insulated. 
it's very much like the punk community where like people from within the community go on to make things for that community. And I think that one of the things that kind of sets old horror apart from newer horror is that a lot of those guys had a deep understanding of film outside of horror. So they had their reference points for the type of art they were making was a lot vaster than a lot of kind of like modern horror gets made with. Um, Maybe I'm generalizing a bit, but we see this in music too, where like, people like yourself that have deep influences way outside of rock and roll and let that kind of seep into the rock and roll that you make makes for a more interesting product or I hate to call it product makes for more interesting art than someone who's only paid attention to rock and roll from the last 10 years. Yeah. There was, there was an experience that I had when, and I'm, I'm actually wearing the shirt. It just so happens. But when I went on the monsters of rock cruise with my dad and my uncle like it was fun and I've and I've mentioned this before on the show but it was like the resentment was palpable like the resentment that a lot of these guys felt because of the end of that specific era of rock music and you have people like Eddie Trunk you know who are just like like to call this era of music nothing more than hair metal is like is is missing the point and and there's so much diversity in you know this era of music and i don't know man i saw a whole lot of guys with eyeliner and soul patches that looked like nikki six that were really sad to be on a floating petting zoo you know and you know signing autographs and stopping for selfies with people like like those people from that genre of music kind of got trapped like in that box you know and and any attempt to even break out of it didn't bode well for them like you look at like people it it, it seems almost like something that's kind of exclusive to the world of of like pure rock and 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 pure metal and pure punk rock and things like that if you try to explore you're almost punished for it you know what i mean those like, are all, that? yeah, those are all, like, uh, so much of your identity gets caught up in that stuff, you know? Like, that's that's what seems to happen, you know? Do you, do you think that that's something similar that happens in the world of horror films? Yeah, I definitely do. I think that people get stuck in, even more so maybe than, like, heavy metal. They're very similar in a couple of ways, and I think it's that gatekeeper mentality of, like, the genres that I like are the only ones that are worth paying attention to and everything else is bullshit. And how those kind of like, we used to talk about this when we were, you know, younger in the punk scene about how there's like the Kings of the punk scene and the kind of like their tastes dictate what's cool to a bunch of other people. And I think horror in particular has a lot of those um, celebrities that are only famous within the horror community who are famous for their curational tastes more than anything and i think that they dictate what is cool and you can the thing about this though is you can find one to match your own personal sensibilities and that's kind of what's true with all curators is that you can find a curator to match your personal sensibilities and there are very few curators out there challenging those they're pandering to some sort of base of like you know my people only like 80s horror movies that are slashers i mean that's kind of ironic that i'm bringing that up but i think that that's like a lot of that idea behind there and they'll look at an Ari Aster movie and go that's not horror that is you know whatever genre and they'll put a label on it that 
rather than calling it horror. Um, and they want to push people like Ari Aster out because he'll openly admit, I'm not a horror director. I'm a filmmaker who uses horror elements as part of my films. And because he's not sitting there like wearing the mohawk and wearing the right patches on his jacket, they're like, he's not punk enough. Get him out of here. He's not horror enough. I don't think that this is correct. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And it's, huh. But to me, you know, as someone who like, I am a fan of horror films. I'm a fan of sci-fi films. I'm a fan of, you know, action adventure and fantasy films. Like, I'm a, I'm a fan of like well made. I'm I'm a fan of good stories, no matter what. Yeah. But in my mind, the purpose of a horror movie is to scare people. And if you're f- kind of married to certain specific genres, like subgenres within the genre of horror, and they aren't performing the task of scaring people. Like, to me, that's kind of, it's a fool's errand, you know, and you're not, you're not doing the job that your art form that one is, you know, that some of these people are being so protective of, you know, some of the, that are becoming so siloed in that they're, they're not, they're not accomplishing their purpose. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's completely possible to lose the plot, right? You get lost in the sauce and you're like, this movie, you start thinking about like, oh, my horror movie has to have all these different references and it has to have all these different beats that are a part of all the other horror movies that had come before it. And you end up with something that's more akin to a comedy than something that's actually terrifying. And I feel like letting go of some of that baggage where you're like, I have to do all these different things to make it punk rock or i have to do all these things to make it a certain flavor of horror and just trying to zero in on that like what makes this scary what in this story makes this scary what's the actual human element that's going to burrow into someone's brain and stick with them or what's that shocking image that you're going to conjure at just the right time to really make it something that's scary versus you could have a horrific scene and if it's not set up correctly so say you have like this horrible creature that undeniably you look at it and it's a scary thing if the lead up to the reveal of that creature isn't right, it's not going to land as scary. Just like the lead up to a punchline, if it doesn't take you on the right journey, isn't going to land and be funny. I think that those are two very similar things. Um, And I think that oftentimes like that idea of trying to get, get the street cred in horror ends with people forgetting that main course of like, I'm trying to make a scary movie, like a movie that's actually It's like a big nostalgic circle jerk, you know what I mean? Right. in, instead of create like Ari Aster, you know, you watch an Ari Aster film. It's like, like Hereditary was upsetting. Yes, you know, it was an, it was it was an upsetting movie to watch, and and it tapped into you know we talked about you know very human things that it taps into. It tapped into family. And it tapped into motherhood, and it tapped into like like all these all these things like that that were really upsetting and really like horrible to watch. Especially like like you can see someone like hack up their whole family, but to see like an entire family get possessed by Satan essentially was like. Did you Man. hear uh, Tony Collette's interview with Mark Marin where she talked about making that movie? No. It was really interesting. She's like, you know, I really love that movie. But then at the end, you know, especially leading up to the end scene, I was like, 
I don't know. Is this gonna? How's this gonna play? Is this really? This is the film we're making? Like, like you know, right. just like it was so over the top and it was so crazy there at the, at the that those those last few scenes. And she she was she said she really had some doubts about it, but then when she saw it cut together, she's like, "Oh, okay, I get it." So, but so yeah, I can only imagine like you know making that movie that's essentially a a family drama, you know, kind of up to a certain point, right? That has like little elements of horror that are very real, you know, right? It's pretty right. crazy. Did um did you uh have you guys started watching the new um. Charlie Kaufman film. Um, I'm thinking of ending things. No. So oh, uh, I want to see that. That's on the list. Yeah, it just yeah, that's it on just, my list as well. It came out on Netflix, and according to Sarah, you know, I haven't followed up on this at all, but according to Sarah, it's being billed as a horror movie, and uh, or it's it's being it's being categorized as a horror movie. And we started watching it, and it it got too late, and we had to get up in the morning, but. It, like, as is with a lot of uh, Charlie Kaufman films, it, like, dives right into being super surreal and jarring and weird and, like, a lot of things coming up that would kind of convince you your mind's playing tricks on you. Like, things change on screen, you know, things will move places. There's, like, a scene where, like, a... You know, the Band-Aid on a character's head moves on to the other side, like deliberate uh, continuity changes and things like that. And um, and what I've watched so far is, I mean, it's a two-hour movie, so it's pretty long. But what I've watched so far is it seems like that, that unease is building in it. Uh, I think I'm going to go home and finish it tonight after we get done with the show. But, um, but I'm curious to see, if it is indeed a horror, I'm curious to see how Charlie Kaufman... You know who whose movies, although be like although his movies are pretty surreal, they're always a little heartwarming and cute. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, it'll be interesting to see if he diverts off the heartwarming and cute um, approach that he normally takes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be interesting to see. I don't know. I don't know. I just. Um, I feel the reason I'm asking you about this, Justin, is I feel like I've been looking for a movie to like legitimately scare me and not just jump scares for a long time. Like I, you know, I like a jump scare movie like anyone, like you said, uh, you know, it's like riding a roller coaster. But, you know, if it's if I will take a movie like a like a slow burn film like midsummer or or hereditary over you know a jump scare laden film like it any day have you seen under the skin no Ooh, that's a good one that's a good one it's it's i think it's one of the best things scarlett johansson's ever done like yeah who's is it jonathan glazer that did that i think yeah i think so i think i, think, I, I haven't skin. seen i don't know that i've seen a whole lot of other stuff by that guy but but under the skin is it's excellent man and the, and the soundtrack is awesome as well like yeah great under visuals the, yeah great visuals just that and beyond the black rainbow kind of had a i don't know, like a common theme going on and i really dug the vibe of both of those movies and they really are like kind of psychological slow burn there's some like kind of body horror going on too as well which i always 
I love <laughs> body horror, man. Is so crazy like that <laughs> fucking Oh god, man. Like uh not too like long video ago. Videodrome. Videodrome is a is Videodrome's a good example of that. Yeah, for sure. And like I just watched uh I just saw Sisters. Um it's like Margot Kidder, like maybe her first movie like back in the 70s and that was De Palma's like first uh, first feature length movie and it was like and it, it had that body horror thing going on and it was really right. <laughs> it was really I'm like, bizarre, I'm like making man. a list here man I got so a, I got a couple things for your list too here Aaron you just reminded me of of a couple of movies so like there was for a while the French were making some of the most like terrifying brutal movies you could think of um this this movie that I just recently saw is called Incident in a Ghostland which sounds like the dumbest title of all time, <laughs> but the the story itself and the way it's laid out is like a huge anxiety inducing thrill ride that will cool. deliver on like the scares and there will be certain things while you're watching it that you're like, that is a weird choice to put that in that scene. And then you realize that that was foreshadowing something huge, uh, you know, basically towards the end of the movie. And you're like, holy shit, like everything that I took issue with had a place, had a reason, brought it into this like realm of like there's a physicality to the horror that is like utterly terrifying. There is a psychological aspect to the horror that really digs into your brain. So you get a that kind of thrill ride of being on the roller coaster, as well as the stuff that you're going to take away and think about for a long time and hopefully haunt your dreams. What was the, I, What was the title of that one again? Incident in a Ghost Land. Incident in a Ghost Land. Okay. Like I said, worst title of all time. Like, really does it? It really sounds like I'm telling you to look up like Bridges of Madison County or something. It's like, like, a, it's like a Hardy Boys starting story. Yeah. Like. The Hardy Boys in Incident and a Ghostland. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I finally got around to watching the rest of the um, uh, John Car- Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. So, I mean, I'd always loved the thing. Um, I even loved the reboot. I thought that they went a little too CGI heavy on it, but. Um, you know, love love John Carpenter's The Thing. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. But I finally got around to watching uh, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. I like both of those movies, uh, too. Yeah. Those movies are both really fun. So I, I like... Um, I also like movies that like aren't really big on like the ultra-terrifying scares, but they have a really good... Uh, they have a really good thriller element to them, you know, um, Altered States, uh, yeah. Jacob's Ladder, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm always looking for things like that. There was like, a, there was an era of 80s and 90s horror and thriller that was like, that was that was really just masterful at that. That was, it it was about more than just like scary monsters and stuff with that. It was like about people dealing with their own personal demons, you know, that I really liked a lot. I almost feel like the label of thriller came out in the nineties to rebrand horror to a certain degree. Right. So that like, I think in the eighties horror got the reputation of blood guts, monsters, boobs, And uh, that kind of like set a different taste for, you know, that built a lot of the fan base, but it also limited the appeal of like an Ari Aster style movie or of a psychological scary movie. 
So they started branding things as thrillers when a horror became successful. Like a horror movie became successful. They're like, nah, it's a thriller. That's not a horror movie. You could go see that. You know, you and the mom could go see that versus <laughs> your mom's not going to go see Friday the 13th with you because those are horror movies. I don't like horror movies, but you're like, um, you know, Silence of the Lambs, which I think is a horror movie you know, almost through and through, but that got branded as a thriller, won an Oscar, and all of a sudden they're like, I think we're onto something with this thriller stuff. People will right. go see these. See, and and that's the thing is, I wouldn't like I would classify Silence of the Lambs as a thriller more than than a horror movie. You know, to me, like horror has horror has more chaos to it. <laughs> you know, horror has a monster. Or a supernatural evil, or a, a type of like, like chaotic malevolence to it. And to me, like a thriller is like it can be like it can be paranormal. It can be supernatural in a way, but it's more about the like. It's more human, if that makes sense. Like it's more like a thriller to me is more about at least semi-feasible circumstances, even if they are like parapsychological or paranormal or, you know, like to me, horror is is like absolutely like something from beyond is coming and just like like tearing human beings apart. Let me let me think about think about it like this: Is horror the anthropomorphization of a thriller concept? So, like psychological stuff has always been something that's really haunted humans because I think it's a miracle that we have bags of goo in our head that you know fire electricity and cause us to have thoughts, feelings, motivations, and basically dictate our entire lives. And I think that uncertainty of things that scare us that that fear response being like a some sort of protection like if i feel this fear i should run or fight right like that's kind of the core of it and i feel like horror when done really well gives us an analogy to to hang on to for some of those harder to articulate psychological aspects of of life so like in Think of like the Babadook or, or something along those where it's like very much a, an allegory for mental illness uh, on several levels. Right. I think that oftentimes horror fits into that to explain like if we were all just around a campfire talking to explain why Aaron decided to kill his family. And, you know, this is a horrible thing to say, but, you know, just why why Aaron and our tribe decided to kill his family and we ended up having to take him out in the woods and kill him and all that horrible stuff that came around. It's a lot easier to say Aaron had a demon inside of him right. or Aaron had a, a monster haunting him and we had to vanquish that evil versus trying to explain to like a child or another tribes person in your in your tribe like. That they Sometimes. had a mental sickness and their heart, their hardware right. malfunctioned in some way. Right. But what if right. it was his final destination? <laughs> Dude, classic, how many of those did they series. make? There's, there's like 15. I don't know. 
It's, and, and that's another one. That's another one that like, uh, like I remember when my dad died, I went through like his movies and he had a copy of Final Destination. And I guarantee you, he just loved the fact that he, he had a DVD that he could just pause on that scythe, just going right through that dude. <laughs> right, right, right. That, right. That's, what he lo- that's what he loved about those things. I feel like your, your dad and I would have gotten along well because like I look at the way I look at like shocking gore in a horror movie is that I'm delighted by the magic trick of it because I, a, I know that it's fake. It terrified me as a kid to see those things like that shock really took me over. But as I sought more of it out, I got more interested in the idea of like, wait, a human being sat down and over months had a plan to like figure out a way to show me a very realistic decapitation and like thinking like, that's a job that you could have. You could have a A job team of art like this. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. thinking, like, just getting into that, like, the magic trick behind it. Like, oh, you convinced me that someone actually lost their head for a second. And then doing, like, what you said your father does. Is like, is that cornflakes? Is that, like, <laughs> is that a, a fire extinguisher kind of blood spurt? Or is yeah, this actually, yeah. like, just a dude with the blood in his mouth spurting it through a tube? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Do I have to mention this really quick, too, because I, I came across this movie the other night, and I had no idea either way about it. I watched it. Uh, Prospect. It's a really good sci-fi movie. Like mm. Shia LaBeouf's in it for like ten minutes, <laughs> but it's like it's a really good sci-fi movie. It's like so often like uh, sci-fi movies they they really try and go just all in a hundred percent on visual effects and stuff like that. And this one is one of those. It's like they create a world where they don't really have to do that. They create a world where they don't have to rely on these fancy visual effects. And it's really about the drama that happens with the characters, but it's set in that science fiction environment. And it's, it's almost like an old Western or something. It's super good. Oh, that's cool. So what, uh, what movie scared you the most as a child? It's stupid, but it was Friday the 13th. That's the first time I remember actually being like, scared of a movie and like having to shut it off and run away um i was watching a marathon on the usa network hosted by joe bob briggs and uh it was literally (laughs) on like friday the 13th i was flipping through and i was like what's this this is kind of cool i'm pretty sure that i was originally like you know oh what's this half naked lady swimming in the water this is kind of cool like what's going on here as a you know very young boy and then having Jason come out and kill people. Like I've been to a couple like week long summer camps. Like I very much had the kind of families like get out of here for a while, you know, like we're going to take you and make you someone else's problem for a bit. So I was familiar with those summer camp situations. And then seeing that, like what generally up until then had been a pretty safe area for me as a kid. Like, yeah, I go and I hang out with a bunch of weirdos and we pick flowers. And, you know, the worst thing that could happen is that maybe we see a bear or something. And then turning that into like, Oh, there's a guy that exists here just to cut you up. Really fucking freaks me out. Um, And I remember, like, shutting it off, running away, being all scared, and then knowing that it was a marathon going, like, I'm going to come back to this when everyone's asleep. (laughs) And I'm going to, like, I'm going to face this head on. And just, like, as a kid, like, holding my eyes open, like, ah, I can't, like, (laughs) trying to see how much of this marathon I could get through. Um, And that turned into, like, are there more movies like this? Because, like, I think that after... The initial scare wore off. It was just like, you know, one movie would roll into the next and you'd start with three and then we'd go into four and then it goes into five and six and seven and eight all the way until it's like 11 a.m. the next day. And you're like, holy shit, like, I can't believe that I kept going on that roller coaster ride um, right. and then being like, well, what are these movies? Are there more movies like this? 
those really stuck out to me. And I think like after that, I got a, a taste for like specifically slasher movies and tried to like figure out all I could behind it. So I found like, who's the guy that made all the, the gore effects? Cause none of these people actually died. Joe Bob Briggs in between each episode or each kind of segment is giving you that information. So I'm sitting there with like a pen in the bath, like Tom Savini. Okay. I can look that up and I can look up these guys and buying books, like going to the library, holy shit, going to the library and finding books, Tom Savini's grand illusion, which is literally just a tome that he wrote with a bunch of pictures of like all these different gore effects that he put into movies explaining exactly step by step how you had to do it. And then he tied together like his philosophy on why it worked, you know, revealing that he was a wartime photographer. So he's actually seen a lot of real life gore, real life death in Vietnam. And that really informed him going forward. Yeah, I remember like, him talking about that. Yeah. He's still one of the only effects guys that I hear talk about, like, no, when you die, your jaw goes slack. So anyone that you see in a movie die and their jaw doesn't go slack, they don't know what death is. Uh, <laughs> but, like, looking at it from that perspective and going, like, this is just art making something that scares you versus something that delights you and thinking about it, like, in those terms and trying to find out more about him in particular and then later on finding about, like, out about KMB effects group, you know, Howard Berger, um, Greg Nicotero all those guys and really getting deep into like, these are the guys that make these movies. Like these effects are what drive these movies and why people are coming to see them and thinking like I added in my mind, they got paid more than the director, right? Like, it's like, of course they do. People right. are here to see that, not the story. And then realize like, really, they were really cheap. Hired out hands. On most yeah. Of, yeah. Hired hands, cheaped out on most of the time. Um, even like the thing, like finding out that Rob Boutine nearly killed himself making that because he just like, worked himself to the bone and ended up getting like through a flu and all these other things. And essentially after they were done shooting, he collapsed and like went to the hospitals like, Holy shit. These guys really gave their all for this. And then well, looking at like any job I've ever had, I've never given it that hard except for like making music. Right. Like, well, he did, other- he did create like, like arguably like the best creature effects, practical creature effects in a horror movie. Like, yeah, like the the thing was like, dude, that that scared the bejesus out of me. Like yeah. that the thing, like you talk about finding those movies and then wanting to go. Are there more movies like this? Like I have been wanting my Amazon or my Netflix or or any of those algorithms to deliver me something as good as the thing. And nothing yeah. has ever been delivered to me that is as good as that. Like, dude, like it's hard to top. Honestly, it's, it's, it's so amazing. I feel it's like it's so a perfect good. movie. It's a yeah. perfect movie, and it's so crazy that when it was released, the public didn't respond to it. It found its audience, you know, basically on home video. But I think it almost got Carpenter to quit making movies. Like, it was kind of you know this big thing, big expectations of him, and he puts it out, and it flops at the box office. And he's just I can't like, believe Whoa. that. Right. It's, it doesn't make any it's sense. It's so good. Well, and it's, I mean, it's such a good story. I mean, like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It's like, I, I, th- I thought he did a great job with it. I, I've seen the original, and I've, and I've seen... Like the original you know, 1950s one? one? Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's, you know, it's it's pretty good, but it's it's definitely not John Carpenter's. I mean, like, that, that shit is awesome. Like, I grew up, like, the closest thing I got is my dad having been a kid in the 50s when the atomic age was the big anxiety that people were experiencing. He was really a big fan of 
giant monster movies. So it's like the Black Tarantula, uh, them. them. Yeah. yeah, them was my dad's like <laughs> one of my dad's favorite movies. My dad loved. It's got some them. good lines in it. Yeah, honestly, it, that one's. But, pretty I good. mean, but the, even those kind of seemed corny to me. And then I started finding because my dad was one of those guys who just ripped everything off of HBO. You know, everything <laughs> off of cable he could. Like, and we just had stacks. We'd have those VHS tapes, and there'd be three movies listed on it. And my dad yep. would just record everything. That was my dad, too. Yeah. Yep. And I remember finding a tape that had Creepshow, um, American Werewolf in London. Uh, I remember finding um, The Blob, the 1980s version of The Blob. Uh, and then, uh, God, what, like, you know, and then watching Tales from the Crypt, like, there was stuff from Tales from the Crypt, or, like, Tales from the Dark, like, even though, looking back at Tales from the Dark Side now, it's campy as a row of tents, but, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, you know, it, uh, it, it, it scared me back then, you know what I mean? And I remember, I remember being more afraid of the idea of Freddy Krueger than actual Freddy Krueger because I didn't know what he looked like because I wasn't allowed to watch the movies. And so I actually had a nightmare when I was a kid that Fred Flintstone was chasing me down <laughs> and trying to kill me. Like, just the idea of Freddy Krueger wow, being man. able to get... Because I had no idea what he looked like. You know what well, I mean? That's the way a dream demon's actually going to get you now, is he's going to appear as Fred Flintstone and, and run all over the top of you. <laughs> um, the little twinkle toes thing. Um, and I remember uh, Logan and I watched Event Horizon at his house when I was probably in middle school, and I was afraid to walk home after seeing, seeing Event Horizon. Like, that... Like that type of like traveling to a dimension of pure chaos and like people ripping their eyeballs out and all like where yeah. we're going, we need no eyes yeah. to see. We don't need <laughs> eyes to see. We don't need roads either, yeah. dude. Exactly. Like, <laughs> like when he dropped that line, like it took me growing up a little bit to get it, but it's like, dude, did you just like paraphrase a Back to the Future line? <laughs> it's kind, of, it kind of funny. I want to see a version of Event Horizon where they don't change anything except for the soundtrack. Yeah, <laughs> that would be a yeah, that would be an improvement. Yeah, just cut the new metal out, replace it with some, you know, I don't know, even eighty synth would work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It did have a bunch of new metal in it, didn't it? Yeah, I don't. Which know. doesn't make sense for a futuristic space movie. You're like. Oh, we're we're back in 1997, like immediately. No, dude. Everybody like in the future listens to new metal. Everybody in the future looks like the guys from Mudvayne. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Things are bad enough. I mean, we are getting a new metal resurgence, so I think that we still have time. We still have time. Oh, dude, I'm I'm wondering if my kid is going to like find Limp Biscuit and just like be fucking into it, man. Like, dude, Slipknot is still incredibly popular. Like they're oh, yeah. still like Slipknot is considered like like they are almost at this point considered respected elder statesmen of the metal world. I would even say they have the um not the same amount of but the same type of genre crossing reach that like Met Metallica has, right? Like Metallica, I think everyone's heard of them. Everyone has at least one Metallica song that they enjoy no matter 
what age, sex, creed, country of origin you are. There, so there's a Metallica song for you. And I think that Slipknot's becoming our generation's version of that to a certain degree. I w- I'm hesitant to say that they're Metallica size, but I think that like just the sheer amount of people from like going to an office and working in an office and finding out like you have long hair in an office. The first thing you're going to get asked is, Oh man, you like Slipknot? <laughs> yeah. Okay? I, I think, I think there's a, um, I think the gates are, uh, a little harder to cross to get into Slipknot than they are to get into Metallica. Like Metallica is pretty accessible, but like if you're trying to sell somebody on Slipknot and that like they're even vaguely aware of them, it's like, are you talking about the guys that like dress up in the costumes and wear the masks and then dress up like scary monsters? You're talking about those guys? That's the band that you're into? No. I can already tell you I'm not going to be into that band. Whereas with Metallica, it's like, <laughs> you can show them the Black Album and they can be like, all right, you know, I could get into this. This is There's some good songs on here. But I, I, I feel like trying to convince someone to get into the Scary Monster costume band is, is, is a little bit bigger of an ask. Maybe I've got a little wishful thinking as a guy who's in a scary monster costume style band of just yeah, like, but you're yeah, in yeah, a, gonna... <laughs> you're in a different <laughs> kind of scary monster costume band. Like I would put you guys in the same category as I would put like Guar or Ghoul or something like that. Whew, like that's some high praise. Yeah, that's super fun stuff. Uh, hey guys, I'm sorry, but I got to jump off. I got to go. I got to go home. It's after eight. I got to go put uh, the little boogie monster to bed. But um. I'm glad we were able to get you on for a second episode, Justin. I love talking with you. I yeah, thought we were going to talk about fun. much more serious stuff this time, and we ended up spending the entire time talking about fucking horror movies that we like. So um, Not against that. Not against that. No. I mean, we did start with so three musicians trying to talk about modern politics, which is always just like... I don't know if we're the right guys to be there, but uh. yeah. Well, and, and like I meant, well, like I mentioned in the last episode, I feel like the as people who are not experts on like anything that we are not experts on, or anything that we're not well versed on, or anything that we don't know what we're talking about, I just think it's important to provide people with at least the um, references. So that they can go and find out on their own. Right. You know, right. like, yeah. here's, the, here's the source material that is currently informing my position. And that position is fluid and, and other information will come in and, and, and move me in different ways. But this We can is, be screen people, too. Yeah, <laughs> we can be the screen. Okay. Oh, yeah. The, to give you a little context, uh, Gordo and I were talking earlier in the week in a text conversation about the almighty screen people telling us what to think and feel and believe. And, <laughs> yeah. Those fucking screen people. Yeah. we were. What were we talking about? Were we talking about all the, like, the people on Spotify was, who are trying to, who yeah, are trying to take Rogan down Joe Rogan? Stuff and, and, and like the view and all this stuff. And I'm just like, these are all screen people. Fuck them. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck the screen people. Yeah. That's I'm what it was. These screen people. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. I think I think that's a good place to call it. Um, just, like we we plugged the new Axe Slasher album, but since we've been talking about horror movies, why don't you tell people uh, where to follow your uh, where to follow your um, movie marathon, your October movie marathon, and uh, and what they can look forward to? Go ahead and drop the plug, buddy. 
Yeah, go ahead. Uh, on axlasher.com, that's where I publish it, usually on midnight, October, or end of September, going into October 1st. I publish it on midnight, put it out there. Um, I'll probably put the list out. Yeah, I'll put it out on, on the 1st, and uh, I usually publish it at axlasher.com, at axlasher on Instagram, uh, at axlasher on Twitter. Those are all the best places to find it. I think I'd cross post it to Facebook, but frankly, I don't pay a lot of attention to Facebook. So if you want to get the good, good, come to it on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Basically, every night when I'm actually watching it, I will post a a picture from that movie. uh, And I'll usually try to provide like a lot of the details that are important to me. So like the director, the director of photography, any special effects. And if I know a little factoid about that movie, I'll post that there as well. Uh, I really do enjoy when people comment and talk about the movies with me while I'm watching it, because generally these are movies that I either have a deep affinity for or have been hyped up so bad that I just have to see them. And October is my protected time where every night in October I drop everything and and just watch horror all month long. Um, Participate in the conversation. Tell me you love it. Tell me you hate it. There's a lot of dudes that are always got some real strong opinions about what I post, and I welcome that. Bring it on. Yeah, man. I, uh, I hey, I took some of your suggestions last year because we needed them. I, I one that the only one I can think of off the top of my head is we definitely watched Body Bags uh, oh, for your yeah. recommendation, which was it, it was fun. I I really do enjoy that particular genre of horror, the vignette. Um, uh, I don't know what you would call that. Is that just anthology like anthology movies, baby? Anthology, anthology movies. movies. I love anthology horror. Um, like I said, Creep Show is one of my favorites of all time, and and uh, and and so I definitely follow your recommendations, and I do appreciate them. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you ro- uh, roll out this year. And hey, those of you who are watching at home, uh, getting ready to go into October, send send me something that'll scare me. I've been wanting to see something scary for a while. Uh, hashtag scare Aaron. Yeah, hashtag, but not in real life. Don't hide in <laughs> the back what, of. You know what you could do. You know what you can do. Send it to the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by by scare me, I don't mean hide in the back of my vehicle and jump out and videotape it and put it on the internet for me to see every year. And dude, like that is still the most popular piece of content I've ever been featured in is a ten second video of me being scared by my asshole friend. Anyway, it's, this has been the motherfucking genuine scare. That's what's so great about it. it's a genuine scare. It is a genuine scare. Uh, hey, this has been the motherfucking podcast, the official podcast of the International Power Rock Combo, motherfucking ruckus. Uh, thanks to all the sponsors. Thanks to our badass patrons for everything that you guys do to keep us alive. Uh, to learn more, go to patreon.com slash mfruckus. Gordo, I fucking love you, man. Yeah. Justin, I fucking love you, man. Thanks for coming love on too, and, and hanging out. And, thanks uh, for having me. All of you out there in uh, internet land, we love you, too. Yeah. We love everybody. We love everyone. (laughs) Be good. Behave, everyone. Behave. Everybody be good. Fade to black. (laughs) The motherfucking podcast is recorded at the Nug Nation Studios in Denver, Colorado, and hosted by Aaron Howell, Tony Lee, Logan O'Connor, and occasionally even Ty Blosser of the international power rock combo, Motherfucking Ruckus. Our producer in the studio is Gordon Ledfoot. Our producers in Chicago are Gene Skibbins and Adam Zielinski. 
All music except Homie shoutouts and featured artists is written and performed by MF Ruckus and comes from the album The Front Lines of Good Times Volume 1 coming this fall on Rodeo Star Records. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, if you find this podcast valuable or entertaining and you wish to support MF Ruckus further, you can rate, review, share, subscribe, follow us on any of our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Spotify. If you really want to help us do what we do, you can go to patreon.com slash mfruckus and become a patron at any level. Our patrons get access to exclusive content, early releases, guest list spots, even VIP parties with beer and food, all in exchange for a small monthly contribution. It really does make a difference and allows us to do this podcast, make records, create videos, go on tour, fly Tony back and forth, and all the other stuff we love to do for you guys. Patreon.com slash MFRuckus. Check it out. Thanks again, guys. You're listening to a Mutiny Transmission. You can find more podcasts, videos, books, comics, and records online at MutinyInfoCafe.com. Or just stop in the store in Denver and have a coffee sometime. 